let's just talk about not, as you said, how to take certain guns away from all people. Let's talk about how to keep all guns away from certain people. And those being the people that we all agree shouldn't have guns. Unfortunately, a lot of the gun control that we have right now primarily disarms the very people who need protection the most. If my research convinces me of anything, it's people who are most likely victims of violent crime, overwhelmingly poor blacks who live in high crime urban areas who are the ones who benefit the most from having the option to be able to go and protect themselves. The police are very important, but the police themselves understand that they virtually always arrive on the crime scene after the crime's committed. And having a gun turns out to be by far the safest course of action. Welcome to episode 122 of the Michaela Peterson podcast. This is another Opposing Views episode where I speak with two people separately who have opposing views on contentious subjects. This is my favorite format of episode and one I'll be focusing on more in upcoming episodes. I spoke with Dan Gross and Dr. John R. Lott about gun control in America. In the first half, I talked to Dan Gross who did the stricter gun control side of this debate. After his brother was very badly wounded in the 1997 Empire State shooting, Gross became a gun control activist. He's worked to raise awareness on gun safety, spearheading campaigns that teach gun owners to mitigate risk. Gross is the former president of the Brady Campaign to Prevent Gun Violence and co-founded the Center for Gun Rights and Responsibility. In the second half, I spoke with gun rights advocate, the economist and political commentator John R. Lott. He's worked for Yale, the University of Chicago, and the U.S. Department of Justice under Trump. He's the founder and former president of the Crime Prevention Research Center. John Lott has published op-eds in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and more. Please, please remember to keep the comments civil. Organizing these episodes is very tricky, and I really love doing them. I think they're so interesting. So let's keep things civil so that more people will agree to come on. Next week's episode is Opposing Views on Bitcoin. I hope you enjoy this episode and this format. If you do, please hit subscribe. I usually release episodes Tuesday and Friday. But I basically almost died last week from a combination of strep and RSV, a virus I didn't know existed. I'm barely alive as it is. You can probably hear it in my voice. Kids are completely overrated. Enjoy your week. Dan Gross, welcome to my podcast. Thank you, Michaela. Before we get started and I ask you a bunch of questions, can you give a brief background about who you are and what it is you do? Yeah, I mean, what I uh, what 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 I do right now is a lot of things, but the reason that we're talking is because of my kind of unique and extensive experience working around guns in the U.S. Um, I, I got involved with the issue because my brother was shot in a shooting that happened on the observation deck of the Empire State Building, actually in February of 1997. He was shot in the head, critically injured. Um, miraculously, he's, he's alive. Um, and so there's a lot to look at in terms of that cup half full scenario. But for him, obviously, and for all of us who love him and care about him, it changed the way we looked at what we do and, and, and our lives. Uh, and in my case, I, I, at the time, I was a partner at a big ad agency, thought I was living my dream, but uh, wound up realizing that there were things that I could do, applying my same passion for marketing and communicating uh, to this issue of 
uh, preventing others from going through what my family's gone through. So I uh, quit that job in advertising, started an organization that was called PAX. It became the Center to Prevent Youth Violence. It became the biggest 501c3 nonprofit in the country on, on, on guns. Um, and, uh, and then uh, over time, as that organization grew, um, built a relationship with Jim and Sarah Brady, who were personal heroes of mine. And at one point, they called along with their board and asked me if I would consider running their organization down in D.C., uh, which uh, was one of those deals where I said, I'll talk to them, but it just doesn't make sense. I live in New York and they're in D.C. And uh, and but lo and behold, after talking to them, it was just an opportunity I couldn't turn down. So I ran the Brady campaign for six years. And, uh, and left a couple years ago um, for, a, for a variety of reasons, but a big, big part of it is I, I was a little bit burnt out focusing just on this issue, uh, you know, the worst thing that ever happened to me and dealing with all the heartbreak, um, you know, on a daily basis that so many people go through. So, uh, you know, now to answer your question, finally, um, I do a lot of consulting, um, including on uh, including still on the on the gun issue. And I've started an organization called the Center for Gun Rights and Responsibility to work with the gun owning community um, around the common ground that I've always been convinced exists. Uh, and right now, um, people are listening to me more than they, they, you know, especially in the gun community, um, than the, than they did when I would, they were able to kind of caricaturize me as the president of the Brady campaign. So that's what I'm doing now, a little more than you bargained for, right, Michaela, but, uh, that's what, uh, that's what I do. Uh, that's perfect. That's perfect. So I think we should start off by you giving maybe a an overview of what your stance on gun control is. And I know that's kind of a large question, but I mean, yeah. is it some people should own certain guns or just a background about what you believe is right for Americans? Yeah, they're kind of two. First of all, what I believe is right for Americans is almost entirely consistent with what most Americans think is right for, for most Americans. I'm not trying to prescribe anything. I'm just trying to find that common ground that I was talking about. And really, I think it, its essence boils down to, to two things. Well, one fundamental thing, which is, you know, we, we all just want to be safe. And we get so caught up in this polarizing political debate and immediately, you know, pick a team, pick a tribe mm -hmm. based on mm -hmm. our political affiliation. And and we don't really realize all the, the common ground that 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 is there and common ground that will accomplish what we all want, which is to to make all of us safe at the end of the day. Um, and there are two fundamental uh, aspects to that, that I've always, you know, made my quote career on this issue, um, folk, focus on a career where I need more money. I would have said in advertising this is a career where the payoff is in creating some positive change. And there, there are two, uh, two fundamental things. Um, one is let's just talk about not, as you said, how to take certain guns away from all people. Let's talk about how to keep all guns away from certain people. And those being the people that we all agree shouldn't have guns. Uh, because when we look at it and you strip away all the rhetoric and all the anger and, 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 you know, that's defined this quote debate for so long, you really realize we all agree who probably shouldn't 
be able to just waltz into a store and, 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 and buy a gun. Most gun stores agree, you know, people, it's just a, it's kind of an obvious thing when you look at it that way. And then the other half of the equation is the responsibility that gun owners need to take totally compartmentalized from any political conversation whatsoever about gun control, about the very real risks associated with having a gun in the home. Just like they're real risks if you bring a chainsaw into your home or a hammer into your home and, you know, a piece a piece of electronic equipment. You want to understand what those risks are, and then you want to do everything that you can to mitigate those risks. Unfortunately, what's happened is that because this issue is so immediately defined as a as an emotional political debate, gun owners too often tend to overlook that other very important part of the conversation. Let's talk about the suicide that happens. Let's talk about the unintentional shootings that, that happen. But let's talk about them in a way that gun owners can do reasonable things without it all curtailing anything politically, their right to own a gun. Or, you know, we got to go into this with a, with a respect for the fact that people who own guns, you know, my grandfather and father took me to Yankee games when I was a kid. That's what we did. That's how we bonded. You know, at this very moment, there are fathers and grandfathers taking their kids hunting. And it's and we have to respect that. This is, you know, this is not what this issue is about. What I want is when that father and grandfather take their kid hunting, that they're teaching that child about firearm safety, that when they get into the home and they have a teenager there, that they're careful to make sure that that teenager isn't going to have unsupervised access to that gun if, you know, that's what they deem is, is, is the safest thing to do. So those are the two fun fundamental things. Politically, it, to me, it's almost entirely about just keeping guns out of the hands of the people we all agree shouldn't have them. And then in terms of education and awareness, it's about just starting a conversation about the very real risks about a gun in the home. And without trying to take guns away or any gun control or anything, let's educate people who bring guns into the home about those risks and what they can do to mitigate them. Okay, so that sounds pretty reasonable. Thank you. Uh, why why is it that you were kind of caricatured and like vilified by certain communities? Yeah, um, I think it's because of how the kind of knee jerk reaction when it comes to talking about this issue, and you know, it's it's what is. What does the media want to show when it's, you know, to get eyeballs? It's people want to show a debate. Um, and as a result, what's happening is, you know, I'm saying the same things that I've always said, uh, but now people are listening because I can't be characterized as the president of the Brady campaign because, you know, now I'm, I'm walking a different walk. So I, I think it's just a, a, a symptom um, a, a of, of unfortunately the way this issue has been ingrained into the American culture as an all or nothing, black and white, um, metaphorically um, issue rather than, you know, there, there's no incentive for people who run organizations on both sides of the issues, by the way, on both sides of the issue. They want to raise money. Politicians want to raise their profile. They want to raise mm -hmm. money. So there's no, and this is, this issue is not unique in this regard. It's a terrible example of 
how ter- you know it's a, it's a great example of how terrible this issue can be. Um, but you know, everybody wants to raise money. Everybody wants to raise their profiles, and as a result, there's really no incentive for like a leading organization on either side to really genuinely, respectfully put their arm around gun owners and say, like, listen, we all want the same thing. And that just makes it easy and it kind of feeds on itself. And the result is like, like literally caricatures of me in, you know, a leading magazine in the in the in the pro pro gun community with a megaphone with fire spitting out of it and scared children in the windows watching me swing through the city, like literally caricatures. But you know that that I can deal with. That's almost fun. But it's the uh, what what happens as a result of that, which is um, it just contributes to this um, this this kind of idea that this is just a political debate. And and as a result, us not listening to each other. Yeah, well, I'm I'm trying to figure out how to bridge gaps in these contentious issues. So hopefully this helps. Um, So you talked about keeping all guns from the wrong people. So how would you suggest judging people, um, figuring out if they're the wrong type of person? Yeah. And, and let me start by saying there's obviously no perfect way to do that. You, and you get yeah. into some genuine conversations about social justice issues and, you know, other, other things that, 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 that I care about deeply. But I think it's important to start by realizing that right now, those people are defined. Um, you know, there is the, the Brady bill that became law um, defined. And then there was an amendment to it about domestic abusers. The Lautenberg amendment defines those people, convicted, uh, convicted felons, um, people who've been adjudicated mentally ill, um, people who've been convicted of domestic abuse. I mean, and those background checks based on that happen every day and they've saved countless lives. You know, we're in the, uh, in the, in the hundreds of thousands of, 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 I think it might be more than that, um, of guns that have been sale. I haven't looked at the figures lately of sales that have been prevented to those people in the prohibited categories. Imagine how many lives that saved. So, there's really people might want you to think there's a there's a real struggle and debate over how you would categorize these people. But the fact is, they're already, you know, why is the speed limit 55 instead of 57? You know, at some point it becomes an arbitrary conversation. But the important thing is that there is a speed limit in place and it works and it saves lives and so forth. The problem is that all the gun sales that happen in our country every day that um, are outside of that background check system. So that background check system only happens at federally licensed firearm dealers. And, you know, it's, it's, there's one happening right now, I guarantee it, where somebody is getting a background check and, and you know, it'll be decided whether they, they're in any of those categories or not, and they'll be able to be able to get their gun. The problem is, you know, when you hear about, and I think this is language that isn't helpful, things like the gun show loophole, you know, what the gun show, have you heard of the gun show loophole? No. So the gun show loophole is what people call the fact people on the gun control side call the fact that uh, people can walk into a, quote, gun show, which is ambiguously defined, which is part part of the problem and be um, and buy a gun without a background check because it's a, because it's a, a gun show and it's not a federally licensed firearm dealer, sometimes from federally licensed firearm dealers and do it off the books. 
So that hurts the law abiding gun dealers because those people don't have to charge taxes, number, number one, but it really hurts all of our collective safety, because if you're a straw purchaser who wants to buy guns and flood them into impacted communities across the country, you think you're going to go to a federally licensed firearm dealer to get those guns? Or do you think you're going to go someplace that does not require a background check? The reason why I think it's very important to um, not just talk about it in terms of the gun show loophole is that, you know, first of all, it's not true of all gun shows. But second of all, it is true of any place where guns are sold commercially. We're not talking about exchanging with friends or, and, you know, there are conversations to be had in terms of where that line is as well. But, you know, if I wanted to give a gun to my daughter, um, I don't think she should have to go through a background check, you know? And so where, where, where is that, where's that line? But there are people who are clearly engaged in the business of buying and selling guns at all sorts of venues online on websites that I don't want to promote right now um, at these gun shows. But if the problem is if you turn them down at a gun show, they'll go across, they'll go out into the parking lot. They'll go across the street into the parking lot of the gas station. So there needs to be a law that and and this is what what I think could be the biggest improvement to the current system. There needs to be a law that requires the commercial sale of guns. How we define it, we can talk about. It requires the commercial sale of of guns to have a background to have background checks, and that law would have a tremendous impact, and it would. Um, go a long way toward accomplishing, again, what we all want, which is just to be safer. So you're saying that at the moment, there's no law that asks for background checks for commercial, the commercial sale of guns? No. Well, commercial sales at federally licensed firearm dealers. To get your federal firearm license, you have to conduct a background check. And those background checks are conducted thousands of times every day. Mm -hmm. Um, The problem is you're some sort of prohibited, you're a convicted violent felon who's gotten out of jail. You go into a gun store, you try to buy a gun. They, you have to fill out a form. They do that background check. They say, you know, you're a convicted violent felon. You're not allowed to have a gun. You walk out of that store, you walk down the street in most states and many, I'm not sure if it's most, many states. And uh, you go to a quote gun show and yeah. that you that same person can buy a gun from a table or somebody walking around yeah. with 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 the same gun that they wanted those people at the gun show i'm saying the way to cuz some of those are you know those grandfathers fathers and their kids that i'm talking about and hunting and let's go and look you know I don't know if you went to like shows like that, car shows, gun shows, whatever it is, you know, there's hobbyists, there are people who are genuinely into it. So I'm not saying that. And if I just sell one gun to one person, I'm not even necessarily saying that that should be the case. But I'm saying if those people go, if people go to a gun show and are selling, you know, some threshold, let's say, you know, more than five guns every six months, if they're taking credit cards for their transactions, if they're advertising, that is a commercial sale. And so those commercial sales have to be made the same as the commercial sale that would have gone down at the um, at the gun store had that, that mm-hmm. fictional person passed the background check. OK, so why isn't that in place already? Because people misconstrue a lot of things and a lot of the things we talked about. Um, 
people misconstrue it as being a political debate over gun rights. People um, look at it, you'll sometimes hear the slippery slope argument. Well, first you wanna do this and then you wanna take my rights away. Then you have organizations, again, I believe on both sides of the issue, kind of feeding that emotional us versus them conversation. You know, there's so much language that's used, like, you know, the gun nuts, the, you know, it's like, don't do that. (laughs) These are people who want, you know, what we want. And so um, as unfortunately, as a result, there's this, it's, it's become impossible to change the political status quo because it's so, it's so entrenched. So it's just easy. You know, you, you can also say like, why did nothing happen after, you know, insert horrific, uh, school shooting here, you know, and then that's a, that's a question you get a lot because, people have gotten good people who are incentivized to maintain this as a political debate have gotten good at maintaining this as a political debate and as a result the american public isn't getting getting the real story on this issue and the, the like look i'm you you've done your homework and i'm talking to you and you're like wait that's why isn't that why isn't that the case um and it it's it's so it is at the end of the day so simple but that's testimony to how just effing crazy this issue is in terms of people, you know, making it into this emotional political debate. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So what I've seen in the news and what's been popularized is the emotional debate where it's like people shouldn't own guns, period. Like take everybody's guns away because guns make the world more dangerous. That's the one side of the story. And then the other side is, oh no, guns make the world safer because you can protect yourself from the people who shouldn't have guns who have guns. So that's, I guess, the politicized debate that's been going on. That's probably like the most fundamental example of it. Yes. And the little secret is the reality is both of those things are true. And so let's talk about it. Yes. Gun rights organizations that, you know, aren't necessarily really concerned about the rights or certainly the well-being of individual gun owners. Yes, um, that gun, gun owning a gun presents a risk when you bring a gun into your house. Let's talk about it. There is a, there are scenarios where owning a gun is unsafe. Why would you not want to educate people about that scenario? What you can do to mitigate the danger? That's not a gun control conversation, but that is that's an education conversation. But it's a critically important conversation. At the same time, gun control community, you know, a, a community that I helped to lead for a, a number of years, um, there is a right to own guns. You're not going to get anywhere by trying to talk people out of that right and trying to and and trying to say nobody should own guns. You're just going to perpetuate that that polit that political debate. And even there are scenarios where guns make you safer. <laughs> I mean, I you know, I have a place way out in the sticks in the country. And, you know, I know a lot of people up there, a lot of friends that I have own guns and I get it. And, you know, you're there. There could be animals. There could be um, there. There could be an intruder. It may legitimately take a long time for with no local police department for the state troopers to get there. You know, 
is there a scenario where you can legitimately be safer to have a gun? This is blasphemy to a lot of the people from the community where that I used to that I used to lead. Is there a scenario where a gun can make you safer? Yes. So let's have both of those. It's not cognitive dissonance. Let's have both of those conversations at the same time. Let's acknowledge there are real risks. Let's talk about what we can do to mitigate those risks. And then let's acknowledge that people who own guns aren't all bad. Most of them aren't bad. Most of them are good people who want what we all want and are de- and are decent people. So let's, you know, let's acknowledge, let's acknowledge that. And let's talk about the, the fact that there are people who derive real benefit and value um, and fulfillment from owning guns. And let's then that sets up the opportunity to have this conversation about, you know, things like background checks on all gun sales, things like educating gun owners about, um, and it's not all gun sales, by the way, but background checks, things about educating gun owners. But right now, like you said, what you see in the news is just the people, people don't dive as deep as you're diving and don't look for that common ground like you are. So there's like, all right, time to do a gun control story, cue up, you know, Dan Gross and whoever the other person is that you're going to talk to. And it just winds up kind of fitting into this mold that at the end of the day needs to be broken in order to do something about this issue. Yes, I agree. Okay. So, so some other questions I had just out of curiosity, do states that have stricter gun control, do they have less gun violence in general? You know, so that's, if you're talking to somebody who goes and leans on that argument, chances are you're not talking to somebody who either fully appreciates this issue or is worse using numbers to um, kind of undermine making some sort of genuine progress. You can't just look at state state by state laws because you know it's it's a weakest link thing. If I'm in New York and New Jersey has incredible, that's it's not true. New Jersey has good laws, but um, if New Jersey has incredibly weak laws, I can just go right over the border. There are places on the border, and there are all sorts of examples of this. There's a whole thriving gun industry on the border of California and Nevada because California is strict law. And so people who, again, those people who might want to traffic mm. guns into impacted communities in California, they'll get in the car and drive a few hours and go. So you can't say that, you know, states with tougher gun laws have um, ha- have n- no difference in the amount of gun violence and and present that as a argument against anything that I just said, you know, until this point um, with what I would view as positive intentions. That was a totally reasonable response. Thanks. Okay. I've got a couple of other questions to throw your way. Hit me. I feel like you, you've, you've had practice, though, years and uh, years of practice. Uh, okay. Other countries. Are there other countries that have as many guns as the states, but less crime? Um, there's some debate about that, I, I, I will say. But, you know, because part of it is, and again, it's a, it's a little bit of a red herring in terms of the conversation, which is why these, what you're asking me are never things that I use to justify any of the positions that, that we talked about before. I can tell you there are states with 
some with significant percentage of gun ownership like Israel and, you know, where everybody um, up to, uh, you know, has to spend two years in the army um, and uh, Switzerland, I understand, has. But they have way stricter laws in terms of background checks and all the kind of things that I'm advocating, um, you know, and they're also more respectful of the risks. You know, as I understand in Israel, your service weapon, you know, is either has to be or encouraged to be kept someplace outside of outside of the home. So again, it's not, it's not the thing to focus on when you're trying to make the case for any of the, uh, for the two things that I'm advocating, which are keep guns out of the wrong hands and educate gun owners about the risks. And yeah, there's a whole industry and it's part of that industry of people who you will talk to, um, hopefully not as part of this, hopefully you'll talk to somebody who's genuinely, um, you know, well-intentioned in terms of trying to make our country safer. But, you know, there are a lot of people out there who, and, and a good test are the people who make, make those points because that had in response to the things that I'm advocating, because let me just be clear, there is no connection between either of those two things and anything that I said prior to this that I know will make us all safer. Okay. So the argument, perhaps the argument where they're like, look at this country, there are more guns there and it's safer. They're not taking into consideration the fact that these people are, are educated differently on guns. They're, ed they're educated differently. They have different laws in terms of who's able to get guns. So ironically, some of those some of those countries where that may rival the U.S., I'm not sure any place passes the U.S., um, but the, but, you know, let's even say they do, but at, at least rival the U.S., um, you know, they they have much lower rates of gun control, gun violence because they actually have the kind of laws that, that that I'm talking about right now in our country, the problem is not primarily the number of guns at this point. The problem is the hands that the guns are getting into, whether it's unsupervised children, somebody with suicidal ideation, um, or a straw purchaser who's funneling guns into the impacted communities. That's those are the problems. The problem is not, you know, so it, it's again, that's used to kind of perpetuate this political debate and saying slippery slope, they just want to take all your guns away. And so it becomes very convenient to say, look at all these countries and the gun. By the way, all this, and I'm just not engaging on it, the US does have certainly at least among the highest rates of gun ownership and the correlation that you see between the number of guns and Gun deaths is definitely on the side of more guns results in more gun deaths, just like more cars will result in more car deaths or more hammers will result in, in more hammer deaths. But I don't engage on that because the fact is the fact there are, you know, 300 million plus guns out there in America. We are not taking those guns away. It is counterproductive to argue taking, you know, take taking guns away from anybody. It's counterproductive because it distracts from the real things that we can do that the owners of those 300 million guns would listen to, but aren't currently listening to because they think you're trying to take their 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 guns away. Okay. Have there been laws implemented to restrict? I'm going to make sure I get my my words right, but 
um, the the guns that like that like, they're like automatic. You can shoot a whole can, bunch of bullets. Yeah, so they're not automatic. Those have been restricted, they're, right? Yeah, those have been restricted. The machine guns, fully automatic guns, have been restricted very heavily for a long time. Um, the debate is over what are called assault weapons. Um, okay. And assault weapons like the AR-15, those are semi-automatic. Um, and then also as part of that large capacity uh, magazines where you can just so an automatic gun is where you hold down the trigger and it just fires a, a semi-automatic is where you have to pull the trigger each time individually. And they have large capacity magazines and, you know, and that's, that's what the, uh, the, the debate is, is over. Um, and believe it or not, that's also a debate that I think is not the right place to put our emphasis for okay. a, for, for a variety of important reasons. Um, let's just start with an important one, but I don't think the most important one, which is it's difficult to define what an assault weapon is and where you, you know, and where you draw the line and people, you know, do people use AR-15s for hunting? Absolutely. But what about target shooting? And is that, you know, so, that become, and by the way, my brother was shot with a semi-automatic gun with a high capacity magazine. So I'm not just cavalierly saying this, yeah. you know, if that person didn't have that gun, there's a good chance my brother, um, you know, wouldn't have been shot or wouldn't have been as grievous, but I'm just thinking about this in terms of how to have the biggest impact. So there's a question in terms of how to define what is an assault weapon. And that winds up being, you know, uh, a, you know, that's a, I, Tucker fricking Carlson, you know, I went on his show and did an interview and all he wanted to talk about is like, can you define an assault weapon? I'm like, I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to talk about keeping the guns out of the hands. We all of the people we all, he had no interest in talking about that because that's not what his viewers want to hear. And that's not how he gets, get, gets ratings. So, you know, so I, I, I like to first kind of put, put that aside. Um, then looking at it pragmatically. And again, I'm, Myself, I've had personal experience with the very unpragmatic side of this. Um, the percentage of gun deaths and injuries, even the percentage of mass shootings, even the percentage of school shootings is relatively low in the case of the mass shootings and just tiny in terms of the overall toll of gun deaths in our country. So the and and the word you know, assault weapon, what you'll usually hear is in the context of what the gun control community says and the gun rights community likes to um, parrot back um, assault weapons ban. We got to ban these assault weapons. Problem is it has the word ban in it. It makes it seem like we're coming for your guns. It gives people a ground to stand on that's at least debatable in terms of the Second Amendment. It's my right to own this gun. Well, the Second Amendment can be you're already in a place where you've lost kind of the emotional resonance of the argument. Instead, and this is why I go back to what I said in the beginning, let's talk not about how to keep certain guns, assault weapons in this case, from everybody, from all people. Let's talk about how to keep every gun, assault weapons and otherwise, from the people who are most likely and already defined as most likely to do harm and already defined as the most dangerous people. So like a background check, I don't care whether it's an AR-15 or a Saturday night special. 
I care that a gun trafficker or convicted felon can't walk into a you know, a, a gun show or go online or meet somebody in a parking lot and, mm-hmm. and buy it and, and, and buy it and buy that gun. Okay. You mentioned earlier, and this is something I wasn't familiar with straw purchaser. Yeah. Um, so straw purchaser is somebody who, um, I'm not, I'm not saying you ever did this, but, um, when one is, 15 years old and and they need to get a beer in 7-Eleven. Um, they uh, they send uh, somebody in the parking lot to go I've in. I've definitely and done that. And buy yeah. the gun and then and then sell them the beer, give them the beer. Now, no no okay. no judgment, no accusation. But that person was a straw purchaser. What happens okay. with 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 guns is um, people who can pass background checks very often when they're not getting it at places that don't require background checks, will go and buy, you know, dozens of guns, scores of guns, sometimes in another state, and bring them back and sell them um, in the communities that are most impacted by gun violence. It goes back to the question you say before, well, New York, you know, Chicago, Illinois, Chicago, Chicago is the toughest gun laws. And why do they have so much gun violence? A big part of that is because of these straw purchasers. They'll buy the guns. They're middle people. They'll buy the guns. They'll. The, I think the technical term would be like a straw man, straw woman, whatever they are, mostly men, um, purchaser who will um, buy that gun and then go and sell it and, and make a profit. And they're just like ridiculous examples of what happens. So there's one gun store right on the outskirts of Chicago called, uh, but over the Chicago city limit. So this person can exist there called Chuck's Gun Shop and, and Pistol Range, where that is known to sell a high percentage of the guns that turn up on the streets of Chicago in the terrible toll of gun violence that happens there, you know, seemingly on, on, on a daily basis. And a big part of that is because of these straw purchasers. And what Chuck's is what I've always called um, a, a, a bad apple gun dealer because they're kind of spoiling it for everyone else. A tiny percentage of gun dealers engage in that behavior where they are knowingly selling guns like, you know, sure, I'll sell you these 20 guns and not ask a question because you can pass this background check, knowingly selling guns that are winding up on the streets and causing uh, all, all of this gun violence. So another thing, in addition to cro- cracking down on the straw purchasers, is also cracking down on these unscrupulous, uh, these unscrupulous gun dealers who, I mean, it's not, it's like, the 80-20 rule on steroids, like the 80-20 rule would be 20% of gun owners sell 80% of, of uh, crime guns. It's more like 5% of gun dealers sell 95% of crime guns. So if we can just do something to go after these gun dealers and crack down on straw purchasers, that to me has always been one of the big opportunities to affect gun violence in these communities. Where And then so you can start to see how Somebody who says, well, there's nothing we can do in Chicago in terms of gun control. So let's not have this conversation because Chicago already has tough gun laws. Well, I just explained to you how, yes, Chicago has very tough gun laws, but Chucks is not covered. The straw purchasers are not, are, are not are not being dealt with. And that is the reason why they have that gun violence. OK, that's interesting. So do you have suggestions on how 
these straw purchases would be cracked down on? Yeah. So one, one aspect of it we've already talked about, which is to make sure that everyone has to, who's engaged in the business commercial business of selling guns has to do background checks. So that, so a straw purchaser can't walk into, you know, a gun show, um, can't go online and to, to one of these websites that I will not advertise, um, and buy guns from strangers without a background check. And if we did that, that would have a very, a very big impact. And I'll tell you the state fact that is relevant is the states with the weakest laws in that regard are the states that are the sources of most of the crime guns in New York and Chicago and Detroit and the places that are, um, you know, in a lot of smaller places. I don't mean to just give the, I love, I love all three of those cities, um, you know, it, it, but it's, it's happening everywhere. And it's happening because they call I-95 the firearm freeway because the guns come up from the mm. states along the Eastern seaboard that have weak gun laws, the Southern states around things like straw purchasers and background checks. And they're brought up to, you know, Newark all, pick on someone else or, you know, um, other, other places on the Eastern seaboard that might have tougher gun laws. So that's one thing that we can do. And then the other thing that we can do is all out war on these unscrupulous gun dealers who are doing this knowingly throw real resources at it because like the numbers are there again, 5% 5% of gun gun dealers sell 95% of crime guns. You know, you want to you 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 want to like really focus on something and bring the weight of the government down on something. You know, uh, there, we we have to leave no stone unturned in terms of going after those gun dealers that are literally knowingly supplying guns onto the streets. And oh, by the way, giving a bad name to the 95% of gun dealers that sell zero crime guns. Okay, so you could potentially identify crime guns. And then if a whole bunch of them are coming from one place, crack down on that place. And that's how you do that. And they have that info. They have that info. Yeah. That info exists. That's weird. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's why that, that, that to me has always been the, you know, possibly the biggest thing. So when I get not frustrated, cause there's a lot of good conversation about Things like, you know, changing the, so, you know, the socioeconomics and the um, systemic racism and, um, you know, the uh, oppression of, you know, people in these impacted communities. Um, and that's right. That's a conversation that has to be had. Um, and then there are great programs like the violence interrupters that go in and, you know, when it seems like there's a, I don't want to like marginalize myself by saying beef, but or, or at one point that was the like starting or there's been one shooting to kind of come in and intervene in somebody who might be a former gang member and, and, and kind of bring people together to prevent it from escalating into more. Mm. These are very, very important things. I look at, at look at it as tent poles. Um, the third tent pole that does not get discussed 
as prevalently as the other two. But I think as it relates to gun violence, not the whole host of other things that are impacted by 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 um, all the by systemic racism and 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 other forms of oppression. Um, you know, it's the it, it it doesn't get talked about, and it would have on gun violence just as much of an impact, if not more. Um, than than either of those two things, at least in the near okay. term. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think I think that summarizes your stance fairly well. Thank you very much for coming on. Uh, is there anything else you want people to know, or any websites you want people to go to, or where people can find you before we end this part of the segment? Yeah, um, they can look me up at uh, Degross Packs on uh, on Twitter. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're the organization that I'm starting with, uh, a guy in the gun rights community, very prevalent, uh, activist in the gun rights community is called the center for gun rights and responsibility. So you can just, uh, search that up and, uh, see the latest in terms of what's going on there. And I want to thank you for, first of all, your intention of bringing the, bringing people together and having a good conversation. And that is consistent with certainly the way that I, I look at look at this issue and for doing your research and being so prepared for this conversation and for, yeah, for letting me ramble and kind of get my get my points across. So thank you, Michaela. Well, thank you. That was very informative. Thanks again for coming on. Cool. You have a good one. Dr. John Lott, welcome to my podcast. Well, thanks for having me on. Good to talk to you. This should be a good conversation. Uh, before we get started, could you give a brief background about who you are and what it is you do? Well, my name is John Lott. I'm president of the Crime Prevention Research Center. I have a PhD in economics. I've held uh, teaching and research professorships at Stanford, University of Chicago, the Wharton Business School, Yale. Uh, I was chief economist for the United States Sentencing Commission. Uh, and then more recently, I was senior advisor for research and statistics for the U.S. Department of Justice. So I've had both academic positions and positions in the federal government that deal with law enforcement type issues. Okay. And then before I start hammering you with questions, um, what are your views on gun control at the moment? Are there things that could be improved? Too many guns, not enough guns. Can you give a brief background about just how you see gun control in America? Well, I think, unfortunately, a lot of the gun control that we have right now primarily disarms the very people who need protection the most. If my research convinces me of anything, it's people who are most likely victims of violent crime, overwhelmingly poor blacks who live in high crime urban areas who are the ones who benefit the most from having the option to be able to go and protect themselves. The police are very important, but the police themselves understand that they virtually always arrive on the crime scene after the crime's committed. And having a gun turns out to be by far the safest course of action. Unfortunately, a lot of the gun control laws that we have make it very costly for poor people and discriminate against minorities. So I'll just give you one example from when I was just working in the federal government. And that is, you know, we hear that the background check system has stopped 3.8 million prohibited people from being able to go and obtain a gun. That's simply false. What they should say is that there've been 3.8 million initial denials and over 99% of those are mistakes. 
It's one thing to stop a felon from buying a gun. It's another thing to stop somebody simply because they have a name similar to a felon from being able to go and buy a gun. And the problem is, is that mistakes overwhelmingly discriminate against black males and Hispanic males. The error rate for mm. black males is more than three times their share of the population. And for Hispanic males, it's more than two and a half times their share of the population. And there's no reason why we should have these mistakes occurring. Private companies do background checks on employees all the time. If they had an error rate that was 100, the error rate that the federal government has, they'd be sued out of existence. And yet, you know, I think this is a very reasonable fix. Why not make the federal government have to meet the same standards for doing background checks that private companies have to meet? But gun control advocates will fight you tooth and nail against that. And there are other issues too. Just look at the costs. In, in Washington, D.C., where they're voting on this, they have background checks on the private transfers of guns. It costs $125 to do a background check on, on each gun that you're going to sell. Let's say you and I lived in Washington, D.C., uh, and I'm going to go and give you four guns. It's just one person giving one other person four guns. You'd think it'd just be one background check because you're the same person who's getting all the guns, right? But no, they have it set up so that there has to be a separate background check done on each gun. And so the total cost of making that one transfer is $500. Provide me with a logical explanation for why they need to make it so incredibly costly for people going buy guns. It may not stop you or I from being able to go and get a gun. But again, the very people who need protection the most are being priced out of this. You know. Democrats will go and say, you know, we can't have uh, uh, photo IDs, government-issued photo IDs for, for voting, because that imposes too large of a burden on poor minorities. Well, how does the $125 fee affect it? And that's not even the cost of getting the ID. You have to have a government-issued ID in order to go and buy a gun. And then they have other licensing rules and other things that just make it very costly. Uh, I'll give you one other example, and that is compare Illinois and Indiana. Okay, uh, Illinois, a heavily Democratic state, Indiana, a heavily Republican state. In Indiana, over 20% of the adult population has a concealed carry permit. In Illinois, it's okay. 3%. And, and there's a simple reason for that. In Illinois, it costs about $450 to go through the process to get a concealed carry permit. In Indiana, it's zero. You look at the distribution. The only types of people who go and get concealed carry permits in Illinois are overwhelmingly white, wealthy males who live in the suburbs. In Indiana, uh, it's much more poor Blacks and Hispanics who live in high-crime urban areas who are then able to go and afford to go and protect themselves. And you go down the list, and in, uh, in Chicago, up until very recently, they banned any training facilities for getting a concealed carry permit. So you're a poor black there. They require 16 hours of training. You know, if you don't have a car, you have to go and borrow a car either two or four days because of the 16-hour training that's there. They don't allow you to take even a permanent concealed handgun on public transportation. So what does that do? It makes it, it's like they went through the list, $450 cost 
unable to take it on public transportation. Uh, no training facilities allowed nearby you. It's kind of like they went down a checklist to do everything they possibly can to make sure that the very people who need protection the most are the ones who are not able to do it. And I, I'll give you one last example. There's two types, two main types of concealed carry laws in the United States. They're what we call right to carry laws, which 42 of the states have, which once you meet certain criteria, you're allowed to carry. You know, you pay a fee, you pass a background check, you do your training. And then there are eight states like New York and California where you have to provide a good reason to some public official why they should let you be able to go and have an option to carry a concealed handgun. So take Los Angeles County, okay, where I was able to get a list of everybody who had gotten approved for getting a concealed handgun permit. They only had like 216 concealed carry permits out of an adult population of 8 million people. But who do they give? Who do they decide has a good reason? Nationwide, about a third of concealed carry permit holders are women. In Los Angeles County, it's 7%. Nationwide, 13% of concealed carry permit holders are black. In Los Angeles County, it's 5%. 54% of Los Angeles County's population is Hispanic. Only 6% of the permit holders are Hispanic. You know, you think, are women only stalked in the rest of the country and not being stalked in Los Angeles County? Don't they have good reasons that are given there? And yet the public officials there who are, who are overwhelmingly 100% Democrat don't seem to, the only people that they think provide them with good reasons to be able to carry are basically wealthy, politically connected white males overwhelmingly are the ones that they decide have good reasons. Why is it? They say they care about poor and minorities. They say they care about women, but yet they don't seem to trust those very same people when they're asking for permission to be able to go and defend themselves and their families. Okay, so how should the government regulate guns? Like for these background checks, how do they decide who should have access to a gun and who shouldn't? Well, I mean, you can go and have it so that people who have felony backgrounds, violent felony backgrounds in particular, can be stopped from being able to go and get guts. I'm no problem with that. My point is simply, if you're going to have these, make it so the system works. Have reasonable fixes to the background check system. You know, <clears throat> otherwise, you're 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 making it so that the very people who need protection the most are being priced out of being able to do it and having mistakes. Look, you can go and appeal when the federal government makes a mistake, but virtually everybody's gonna require a lawyer to help them go through the process, mm -hmm. fix the thing. The starting cost for hiring a lawyer is like $3,000 on up. Okay. Why should somebody, through no fault of their own, simply because the federal government's looking at roughly phonetically similar names and similar birthdays and doing background checks, why should they have to pay $3,000 or more to fix a mistake that's not their fault? So you're saying keep the background checks, but fix the inconsistencies. Right. But here's the problem. And that exactly. But here's the problem. I've been making this argument for 20 years, but Democrats will fight you tooth and nail 
against a simple fix. I want somebody to explain to me what reasonable explanation can you give for why 99% of the people who are stopped from buying guns because of background checks are mistakes. Give me, give me an explanation for why you'd want a system where virtually everybody who gets stopped is not the guy you think you're stopping. Seems reasonable. So how easy, though, for people who get stopped with background checks, how easy is it for them to go to, say, a gun show and then get a gun there? Well, I mean, the vast majority of guns, anybody who's a, a licensed dealer who's selling a gun anyplace has to go and do a background check. I don't know if you've ever been to a gun show, but virtually everybody who's selling a gun there is a licensed dealer. And they have to go through and do a background check that's there. Look, we, the federal government, where I've been, has done surveys of criminals to find out where they go and get their guns. Mm-hmm. You're talking about maybe less than 1%, maybe six-tenths of 1% of felons get their guns from either gun shows or flea markets. This is not a major source of guns. Look, if you're, where do you think the major source of guns for for criminals are. It's drug dealers. Drug dealers have guns simply because they have to go and protect their valuable property that they have. It's not like a drug dealer can go to the police and say, this other dealer stole my drugs. Can you help us get them back? All right. They have to go and set up essentially their own little militaries in order to go and protect that valuable property that they have. So you know, drug dealers like to make money. And if they can make money selling drugs, they do that. If they can make money selling guns, they do that too. And, you know, uh, it's if you think you're going to be able to stop criminals from buying guns any more easily than you can stop them from buying illegal drugs, good luck with that. I mean, I give talks at universities. I go and ask students, you know, if I give them a few days, how many of them can go and buy different types of illegal drugs? And I'm not saying they do this, but you have maybe 80% of the students raise their hands and think that there's no problem that they're going to be able to do it. Yeah. Well, these drug dealers have very valuable property. You know, you look at a country like Mexico, okay, next door to us there. Um, Mexico, since 1972, has had only one gun store in the country. It's located in Mexico City. It's run by the military. Guns are extremely expensive. The most powerful gun that you've been able to legally buy in Mexico since 1972 is a .22 caliber short round rifle, which is about the least powerful gun that you can go and buy in the United States. And, you know, um, only only about one-tenth of 1% of Mexican adults is legally licensed to own a gun. It costs like $2,000 fee just to go and apply for the process to go and get a, get a gun to own in your home in Mexico. Uh, you can't sell it to anybody, even if you do get a gun. The only people you can sell it back to is the federal government. So you think, boy, they have incredibly strict gun control laws. And yet Mexico has a murder rate six times higher than the murder rate that we have in the United States. Drug dealers in Mexico bring in drugs from around the rest of the world, and they go and bring in weapons from around the world. When I was recently testifying a few years ago in Mexico before the federal Senate and House, 
you know, it's amazing. You go talk to law enforcement there. They had found something like 15,000 hand grenades that they had confiscated from uh, uh, drug gangs down there. You think you go to American uh, gun stores and buy hand grenades? They had confiscated machine guns. Do you think you go to gun stores in the United States and buy machine guns? No. These are weapons. Some of them they stole from the Mexican military, but lots of them they brought, they brought in from around the world, South America and Asia and other places like that. And, you know, they have rocket launchers. They have all sorts of other things because there's a huge amount of money involved in drug smuggling that's there. And so it pays for them to go and buy weapons to protect themselves, not just from the government, but also from other drug gangs that will try to steal their valuable property that's there. If I could click my fingers right now and cause all guns in the United States to disappear and all illegal drugs, how long do you think it would be before illegal drugs started coming back into the United States? If you're in El Paso, 20 minutes? And how long before they'd go and bring in the illegal guns to go and protect that valuable property? They'd bring them in at the same time. They're not going to risk bringing in huge amounts of very valuable property that could be stolen from them. And they want to protect them. And so, you know, the notion that somehow, you know, you're going to be any more successful in stopping criminals from getting guns than you've been from stopping them from getting illegal drugs. I just don't think is very serious. And what people have to realize is what a huge percentage of murders in the United States are drug gang related. Over half the murders in the United States occur within 2% of the counties. That's 60 of the 3,140 counties in the United States account for over half the murders. And if you look at what's called a murder map of those counties, what you'll find is almost two-thirds of their murders take place within 10 block areas. Murders, unlike most other countries, murders in the United States are extremely heavily concentrated in very tiny areas within the United States. You have, you have three-quarters of the counties in the United States that have either zero murders or one murder in a year. About 60% have zero murders in any given year. You know. By the way, those are the counties that tend to have the highest gun ownership rates in the United States. But, you know, in any case, uh, if you're going to deal with the murder problem in the United States, you're going to have to go and deal with drug gangs. And that's a conversation I'm happy to have. But uh, I just mentioned one other thing, and that is people have to realize that the vast majority of violent crime in the United States also doesn't involve guns. 92% of violent crime in the United States has no connection with guns in any way. So if you're going to go and solve violent crime, you have to go and deal with violent crime generally. But if you're going to deal with murders, you're going to have to go and deal with drug gangs because they fight against each other all the time to try to control drug turf. I've heard that, and I could be wrong, but I've heard that a lot of the guns used in crime in the states are bought through straw purchases purchasers is that true look one i don't believe that that's the case you look at surveys of people who are in prison that's not the case they buy them off the street they buy them from others that are there but here, here's the problem and that is 
they're close substitute ways for them to go and get guns. You know, just as the discussion we were just having, you know, if I could go and cause all guns to disappear from the United States, do you think, do you think new guns will be brought in to protect the drug gangs that are there? And if you think yeah, that that's definitely. Yeah. Okay. So if you think that that's the case, then, you know, even if you stop one way, even if that was a significant way of doing it, there are other ways that they're going to go and get the weapons that they need to protect their valuable property. Okay. So you're suggesting, well, we keep the background checks, but that it has to be fixed so that it's not randomly choosing people with similar names to people who've caused violent crimes. Right. Similar names and similar birthdays. I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever bought a gun, but you fill out something called a 4473. You put down your name, your address, your social security number, your birthday, your race, your eye color. You think they're using all that information, but they're not. They're, the vast majority of checks just look at roughly phonetically similar names and similar birthdays. And there's no reason why that should be the case. Unfortunately, I've come to the conclusion that oh, the people who are pushing these background checks really don't care about the background checks because they could get them passed tomorrow or today if they just made a few really simple changes. Make it so that uh, they, the federal government has to meet the same standards for doing background checks that private companies do. Pay for the checks out of general revenue. So here, here's the general point. Mm. If you believe that background checks reduce violent crime, then you believe it reduces it for everybody, not just the person who's going out of the way to go and obey the law that's there. And also you think you want to encourage people to go and obey the law. How does making somebody have to pay $125 to go and do the background check encourage them to go and do that? You're essentially taxing them to go and do what you want them to do yeah. and go out of their way to do that. So. As an economist, I would say, look, if everybody benefits, everybody should pay. And if you want to encourage people to do this, both reasons tell me you should pay for it out of general revenue. If you could make those two changes, fix the mistakes and, and deal with paying for it out of general revenue, if you think there are these big benefits, and I, I'm skeptical there are, but if you think there are these big benefits, you'd think they'd want to do that. And yet, and I've been telling them for 20 years, they could get this passed right away, but they refuse to make those changes. And to me, I have to ask myself, what are the arguments against these things? The only arguments that I can think of against these things is that they want to make it costly. They want to make it difficult. They want to prevent poor minorities from being able to go and buy guns. If you have another explanation, in fact, when we were setting this up, I was hoping that we could have the gun control person on at the same time so that they could say what their explanation is for something like this. Because I never hear an explanation when I go and I bring up these concerns. Yeah, well, those are fair questions. Those are fair questions. I may set these up in the future so that I have both people on at once. But for now, it's interesting. Yeah, I'm not, getting, not criticizing you. Each I'm, view. Just saying, I'm just saying, I really want... It's very hard to get debates on these types of things because gun control activists refuse to appear on at the same time. And the main reason is, is because 
they don't have to. Most of the media doesn't make them have to go yeah. and have debates. Do you think that people pushing that are just concerned with maybe kind of punishing people who want to own guns and saying, OK, you have to do these fees and we're not footing it. And they're not even considering the fact that some people have less money. I think I think that's right. I think they're trying to make it as costly as possible for people to be able to go and get guns. I'll give you a, another related example. And that is, uh, look at these red flag laws that they have. Uh, they're being pushed. In fact, uh, it looks like right now the federal government's likely to uh, be using a lot of money to encourage states to adopt these laws in the current $3.5 trillion spending bill that they have. What are the laws? Well, these, these are laws uh, that are set up so that if you're concerned about somebody being a danger to themselves or others, you can go and register a complaint. A judge will oh. see a piece of paper with the complaint, and then they'll go and take away the person's gun that's there for some period of time, maybe a month, and then there'll be a hearing whether or not to make it permanent or not. Yikes. Okay. Uh, so here's the deal. We already have in all the states, and it goes by different names, often called Baker Act, California is called 5150, where if you're concerned somebody's a danger to themselves or others, you go to the police, the person will undergo a 24-hour to 72-hour psychiatric evaluation where you'll have psychiatric experts there. And then you'll have immediately following that a hearing where if you can't afford it, a lawyer will be provided for you, okay? And the judge has a whole range of options then. He can go and require that you get voluntary treatment. Uh, he can go and take away your weapons if he's concerned about that. Or he can go in the most extreme case and involuntarily commit somebody. Virtually always, all, all these things are used for concerns about suicide. That's yeah. used. The thing is, the red flag laws don't involve mental health care experts, okay? Uh, if you can't afford a lawyer, tough. You know, you have to, you go in on your own. In fact, you look at these cases in the red flag law, uh, it costs about $10,000 to go into a hearing. The only thing that happens under the red flag laws is that you lose your ability to have a gun. Well, I may want to have a gun. I may care about it for protection, but $10,000? I mean, $10,000 is a lot of money there. And so the vast majority of people who go through that process uh, don't get a lawyer when they have to go to court. Uh, and it makes it pretty hard when you're up against lawyers and you don't have a lawyer yourself representing you uh, to be able to go and win those types of cases. But it's, it's not mm -hmm. because the people think that they're really a danger or whatever. It's just that they don't, even if they can't afford it. But here's the problem is that the type of change that they want to make can actually have the opposite effect of what they'd like to have, what they claim they want to have happen. I have a very close friend of mine uh, who's watched her husband be murdered in front of her by one of her stalkers. And um, uh, if you have these types of red flag laws that are there, Let's say a friend of hers, a relative, a neighbor, they say, look, she's really depressed, okay? Mm. I mean, anybody would be. You've just had your loved one, watched your loved one murdered in front of you by one of your stalkers that are there. And they know that she has a gun. 
And so they could go and say, look, I'm worried she's depressed. I'm going to, uh, she has a gun. Uh, I'll make a complaint. The only thing the judge sees when he makes the decision whether or not to take away the person's gun is that written complaint. Well, in her case, if you put yourself in that situation, you've just had one of your stalkers murdered your husband. How do you think you'd feel if your ability to go and protect yourself was going to be taken away from you? Do you think that'd make you even more depressed? And what does that do to your incentive to go and talk to people, to share your feelings with others? If you worry that somebody might misinterpret it, simply being able to go and talk to people is very helpful when you're extremely depressed like that. Just being able to share your feelings, know that you're not alone can make a huge mm-hmm. difference in terms of how people get through this type of thing. And yet the gun control advocates have set up a process in uh, 18 states now where simply could be a very well-meaning person, puts in a complaint, judge hears nothing from the person whose the complaint is being lodged against. And you know he may be well-meaning himself. He sees this person's depressed. They have a gun. Yeah. But, but if you have the, the process that we've had, these Baker Act type things, she could go in there. She gets evaluated by a psychiatric expert. She can explain to the expert why it's important that she still be able to go and defend herself. And even if she couldn't convince that person, she goes to court. And if she can't afford a lawyer, one is provided for her and she can make an argument yeah. to the judge. So you have to ask yourself, why did gun control advocates push a situation where it would make people actually afraid to go and talk to people? You take police officers. Police officers tend to commit suicide at a relatively high rate compared to the general population. They tend to be depressed at a relatively high rate compared to the rest of the population. Why? I mean, they see horrible things on the job all the time. Do we want to make it so police officers are afraid to go and share their feelings with other people? If you take away a police officer's gun, what do you think you do to their job? You've taken away their job that's there. They lose their job if you take away their guns. Do we want to make it so that police officers are afraid to go and talk to people? And yet, again, I think these are simple, reasonable changes, okay? Pay for a lawyer if a person can't afford it. Make the include mental health care experts in the process and have mental health care experts evaluate the person before you go and you have a hearing. Don't have the the judge simply making a decision based only on seeing the written complaint and not being able to hear the other person's side of the story when he's making that type of decision that's there. You know, and besides. If I'm really concerned about somebody committing suicide, really concerned, is the only solution to take away their gun? Is there like no other way for these people to go and kill themselves? I mean, go talk to Jeffrey Epstein if you don't think that there's other ways for people to go and and kill themselves. Uh, And so, you know, it's, I think a lot of this is just to demonize the gun. It's just to say, well, if you take away the guns, situation stalled. There's no problem at that point. And I think that's really dangerous. I think that's really misleading for people. And I think there's evidence out there that, in fact, you increase suicide rates 
And I think for the reason that I was just mentioning that you make it so that people now are afraid to go and share their feelings and talk to other people. What do you think of people who think that there needs to be more education surrounding how you store guns and safety with guns and that that's one of the problems with American gun control at the moment is just lack of education? I have no problem with people being educated about it. But here's the thing. I think if you look at the numbers, Americans are extremely responsible with regard to guns. Uh, you can go to the Centers for Disease Control website, uh, their uh, fatal injury report data that they have. And what you'll find for, let's say, kids under age 10 in the United States, uh, for the most recent year, there was 36 accidental gun deaths in the United States. Is 36, do you wish it was zero? Yeah, sure, I wish it was zero. But when you consider half of American homes have guns in them, okay, um, and you go and you look at anything else, when you have like 95 kids under five who drown in, in, uh, in five-gallon water buckets, you have uh, more than that who drowned in bathtubs in the home. So if I were to go and just ask you beforehand and say, okay, guns are owned in half of American homes, what is your guess that children under age 10 die from accidental gunshots? My guess is your number would have been much higher than 36. Yeah, yeah. And part of the reason is, is whenever these things happen, they get national news coverage. And it makes people think that they're more common than they are, I think, to some extent. But, you know, uh, and even when you look at those 36, uh, about two-thirds of those are not shots by other children. They're shots by adult males, usually in their mid to late 20s, who have criminal records, who have, in many cases, it's illegal for them to own guns and are often drug addicts or alcoholics. So, you know, I can go and say we want to educate people, but a lot of these guys, it's illegal for them to own the gun to begin with. And so if I go and pass a gun lock law, is it going to affect these guys? And a gun lock's not going to affect an adult male, particularly an adult male criminal who's unlikely to go and obey the law to begin with, to be able to go uh, and do it. It's not going to stop him from accidentally firing his gun. But here's the problem, and that is, their costs and benefits. I, I mean, as an economist, we're always weighing trade-offs with different things. And so I go and pass a law that requires people have to lock up their guns in their homes, okay, which is one of the things that's involved with this. It doesn't make sense for everybody to do it. If I live in a high crime urban area, I may want to have quick access to a gun that's there. Delaying it may make it so that I'm not able yeah. to go and defend myself and my family. You have to weigh the risks of the gun in the home versus the fact that people aren't gonna be able to go and defend themselves. And often when these laws get passed, you'll see about a five percentage point drop in gun ownership that occurs right when these safe storage laws get passed. And a lot of that has to do with the exaggerated stories that occur in the media at that time about the dangers of having guns in the home. And so, look, I mean, I have five kids. I don't want anything to happen to any of my kids, but I would go and argue that the vast majority of Americans are extremely careful. Look, the risk of a child dying from an accidental gunshot in the home is less than the risk of them dying from lightning strikes. 
Do I go and tell my kids not to go in an open field with an umbrella when it's lightning outside? Yeah, sure. There's sensible things you try to go and do. I would just argue, I think, looking at the data, that the vast majority of Americans are actually behaving fairly responsibly. And that, unfortunately, this gets back to your point before about whether a lot of these laws are just trying to make it costly for people to be able to go and own guns. And I think this is just another example of it. They try in many different ways to do that. Okay, last question. Do, do states that have stricter gun laws, does that reduce gun crime? No, it has the opposite effect. Uh, let me give you just a simple example just to think about. This is an extreme case, but it applies generally. And that is, can you name me one place in the world that's banned either all guns or all handguns and seen murder or homicide rates go down? Just one place. I'm talking about before and after, because there's all sorts of reasons why different places differ uh, in terms of crime rates. Uh, it, I can't find a single place. Every single time, murder rates go up. You'd think out of randomness, once or twice it would go down. Uh, you'd think, particularly if you believe guns on net are bad, you would think for sure it should go down every single time. And yet every single time, you know, Americans know about what happened in Chicago and Washington, D.C. when we had handgun bans there and the murder rates went up. Gun control advocates will, will say, well, that really wasn't a fair test because unless you go and you ban guns every place, uh, people can still go and get guns from Maryland or Virginia or from the rest of Illinois or from Indiana. The problem is that doesn't explain why the murder rates went up. It may explain why it didn't fall as much as they were originally predicting it was going to do. But they were able to get the guns from those other places to begin with before the ban went into effect. And so, but here's the problem, and that is, and this applies to gun control laws generally, and that is you have to be careful when you pass a law that you're not going to be primarily disarming law-abiding citizens relative to criminals. You may take some guns away from criminals, but if it's mainly, in this case, law-abiding citizens turning in their guns, obeying the law, so you're primarily disarming the victims relative to the criminals. You actually can make it easier for criminals to go and commit crimes. And so you see increases. And so, and this applies to any of these things. The background check discussion that we were having, if it primarily, because of these mistakes and these costs and other things, primarily disarms law-abiding citizens relative to criminals, you can actually have the opposite effect of what you'd like to have happen in these cases. And so, you know, um, you know, I, I think if you look at the serious statistical work, I've been an academic, I've published over 120 peer-reviewed articles in, in journals. Uh, I think if you look at the serious work to answer your specific question, you find that the states that have stricter gun control laws tend to have uh, higher murder rates, higher violent crime rates. And, you know, it's not just that. You look at concealed carry laws, there's a huge difference in across states in terms of the percentage of the adult population with concealed handgun permits. Uh, uh, there, as I mentioned, there's basically these two types of states, these right to carry states and these uh, May issue states. In the May issue states, you're talking about literally a, a, just a couple few percentage points, tenths of a percentage point of the adult population with a permit. On average, 
for the rest of the states, you're talking about 9% or so of the adult population with permits. Uh, and that was last year. My guess is it's probably about 10% right now. And so, you know, uh, and anyway, but what you find is that those states that make it easier for people to go and get concealed handgun permits, particularly those states that make it easiest for poor and minority people, the people who are most likely victims of violent crime to be able to go and defend themselves, they have the, the biggest drops in violent crimes. As more permits are issued, you see greater drops in violent crime. There's a reason why police strongly support concealed carry laws. You look at surveys of police officers, you'll find like 95% of police in a survey by Police One, which has about 450,000 members, 380,000 of them are full-time law enforcement, the other 70,000 are retired, support relatively easy access to concealed handgun permits for people. Uh, you know, they see the importance in their own lives of, of being able to go and use a gun. And they're strongly supportive of uh, private citizens being able to do it. Uh, you know, you look at another survey from them where they asked them, how important is it for reducing crime for law-abiding citizens to have guns? 76% of police officers think that private ownership of guns is either extremely important or very important in terms of reducing crime. Okay. That's a lot. So, you know, these are the people that have to deal with these situations all the time. And they, yeah. so. Okay, well, I think that, that settles it for me. I think I'm good. I've asked you the questions I wanted to ask you. Thank you very much for coming on. If you want to direct people to either follow you online or to any websites they should know about, where do they go? Well, our, our website is crimeresearch.org crimeresearch.org. We're basically a group of academics. As I mentioned, I've had positions at a number of universities, but we have Arthur Berg at Harvard, uh, Bill Landis at the University of Chicago, uh, Scott Armstrong at the Wharton Business School, others who have expertise in different areas. Uh, you know, we know where the data is, and that's what we try to put out regularly there. So if people if they go to crimeresearch.org, they can sign up for our email list. Uh, once every two weeks, we send out an email so that people can see the latest research that we've been doing on these different topics. Very cool. Okay. Well, thank you very much for coming on. I appreciate your time. Thank you for being here. <laughs>